What we're talking about today is the question, what is the mark of the beast? Revelation chapter 13, the passage really begins in verse 11 and begins to talk about the beast and the dragon. This is Revelation chapter 13, verse 16. Also, it causes all, and again, probably you need a little bit of context to know who it is. It has two horns like a lamb. It speaks like a dragon. It exercises, exercises all authority of the first. That's who it's talking about. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. So there are a few things that we uh, need to discuss. First thing is, there's some debate as to whether this number is meant to be uh, symbolic or if it's directly pointing to an individual that the receiving audience in the first century uh, would have known. So there have been folks who argue along those lines that 666 is the numerical equivalent of the name of Nero, one of the emperors. Um, and then we do have some manuscripts of the New Testament in which the number is not 666, but 616. And there have been a few articles arguing that that's an older attestation, perhaps, than the 666. And some have said that might relate to the name of Caligula. Now, I don't get into too much of the, of the numerology uh, kind of study of numbers uh, sort of thing, but I have no reason to doubt that those are possibilities. When it comes to the mark of the beast, this 666, and however you're, we're going to understand it, which hopefully will have a little more uh, material to work with at the end of this discussion than we have right now at the beginning of it. But whatever that is, it is placed on the right hand or on the forehead. Now, that's led to some great concern that whatever this thing is, it's a piece of technology or a tattoo, some sort of a tangible mark. And I've talked with a great many Christians who are greatly concerned that they could accidentally take the mark of the beast because they adopt some type of technology that suddenly down the line will exempt them from faithfulness to Jesus. I think that is highly, it's not, I'm not saying it's highly unlikely that technology will be involved in whatever this means. And after this conversation, my hope is that we'll, have, like I said, have more, to, more on the table to discuss than we do right now. But I think it's very unlikely that the book of Revelation is warning that people could simply adopt something that looks innocuous and find out that they've just condemned themselves uh, to the wrong side of history. I don't think it could possibly be that. That just doesn't sound like the New Testament to me, and it doesn't sound like God either. If this is a piece of technology, if it is a tattoo, if it is a, a literal mark of some sort, then it would have to be accompanied with a knowing rejection of, of Jesus in some way, or a knowing adoption of some sort of value system that is completely in contradiction to the to what Christians are expected to believe. It would have to be that. There's no way that we could simply stumble in to the mark of the beast. I don't believe that. That just does not sound like the scriptures to me. And there's more to it than just it not sounding like the scriptures to me. In fact, I think the fact that this thing is placed on the forehead and the right hand to be highly significant 
and lean towards the idea that it's more likely metaphorical than it is a literal piece of technology or some literal mark on the forehead. And the reason I say that is because this seems to me to hearken back to, to the book of Deuteronomy. As we do go back to the Shema, what's often called the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, we find these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You notice this little description here that I'm highlighting. Bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Now, there most certainly are people in the Jewish tradition who have taken this extremely literally and have actually put boxes with uh, Torah on their foreheads or bound to the back of their hands and certainly have written Torah on the door frames of their houses. But there's no doubt to me that this is meant to be somewhat metaphorical. I mean, understood as something that needs to be literally applied, but applied in a very specific way that the metaphor directs us. So the actual Hebrew here, well, certainly it's, it's bind them as a sign on your right hand. And this is the hand in the ancient world with which you do things. This is action. So the sense here is that the law of God should guide your, what you do in the world. And the other, fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's as the frontlets between your eyes. It's like where I have my glasses, where it needs to be, as though it is directing the gates. And then the doorposts of your houses are the places where decisions are made for the home, and the gates are the places where decisions are made for cities. So the direction of God is that the law of God should direct your doing, the things you do in the world, that's the right hand. It should direct how you walk in the world. Like glasses, it should direct your vision. It should be written on your forehead. And then it should be put on the, on the doorposts of your houses. It should be a guiding principle for your homes, and it should be on the gates of your city. It should be the law of God should direct the culture in which you live. Of course, this is the people of Israel, and God is setting up an entire nation meant to be guided by law and revelation of God. So th this is literal. I mean, you are actually supposed to allow the law of God to direct everything you do and every place you point. That's literal, but they're metaphors that are being used to describe it. And interestingly enough, it seems to me that in the book of Revelation, that is picked up again. Except in Revelation, there's a different mark being put on the hand and on the frontlets between the eyes. The mark of the beast, it seems to me, is some sort of a way of living that is like the law of God. It's a direction for life. It lays out the principles for how you live and move in the world, just like the law did. Except this, this set of principles are not of God. They're of the beast. And the people who embrace the beast have them written on their hands, meaning they behave and interact in the world according to these values. And they have them on their forehead. They have them centered right there. And they direct their vision. And the things they aim at in life and the direction that they choose to head is guided by this law, this pseudo-law. Just like the Antichrist is a false messiah, a false savior, a false deliverer, a false king. 
So the mark of the beast is a false law. It's a law other than the law of God. And we, we don't probably have to look too far to know if, if that's what it is, then the mark of the beast is everywhere. And it has been for a great long time because cultures and civilizations and even religious people oftentimes take on the marks of the secular world and follow their values. It was happening in the first century that you can see it throughout Paul's epistles and the things he's trying to confront in those. And it's certainly happening today. My sense is that just like the Antichrist is a false savior, false messiah, false king, false deliverer, so the mark of the beast is a false law that guides the people who have embraced the principles and the guides and the values of the beast, of the false messiah. And because I think that's true, I think that the mark of the beast is very unlikely to be a piece of technology, unless that piece of technology comes specifically with the need to embrace a certain set of values that would be in complete contradiction to the teachings of God through the First Testament, especially as that has been interpreted and filled full by Jesus in the New. So that's my sense of the mark of the beast. And so those who are marked with it, they're, they're probably you'd only know by their fruit. You'd only know by the way they live and move in the world. And it seems to me that in, in times of great distress, people's idols are exposed. The places that we look to for security, comfort, safety, that's where our eyes are. That shows what's marked on our forehead. And those are the things we work with, what's on our hand. So that's my sense of the mark of the beast. And so uh, you might say that every generation has um, a, a, a law that competes with the law of God. And those who receive the mark are those who live according to those principles, who live according to those rules, those guides. Now, why is it 666? Well, I think this is interesting. And this is where the idea that this might relate to a Roman emperor, whether we're talking about Nero or Caligula or somebody else, it has a little bit of teeth. Because I think one of the things, and Revelation indicates that this is not easy to understand. It says, let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast. I think the indication here is that this will not be quite as easy to understand. But if we have eyes to see, we might understand why 666 is the right number for describing this loyalty to a set of principles and guides that are not consistent with Jesus, that are not consistent with the true Messiah, the true Christ, our true King, our true Deliverer, our true Savior, the Anointed One of God, destined to rule us. And so if, let's say this is relating to Nero or to Caligula. That would be a very simple, I haven't done the Gematra. I, I don't really know if, if, these 616 actually corresponds to Caligula's name or 666 actually corresponds to Nero's. This is like being told that Chernobyl means wormwood in German. I've been told that my entire life. I, I can't confirm whether it's true or false. But let's just say that for the sake of argument, 666 relates to Nero, 616 relates to Caligula. It'd be interesting that they would be changing the number based on who was Caesar. If that's the case, then we know that what's being directed at is the head of the government in their day. And that would be interesting because we do have a word from Jesus that might actually 
um, help us to illuminate what John is trying to hint at. Mark chapter 12, verse 16. Some of you remember this. Jesus, they're trying to catch Jesus in a little trap by asking him if he should pay taxes uh, to Caesar. Whatever he says, if he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, he'll be in trouble with the Romans. If he says, yes, you should pay taxes, he'll be in trouble with the people in Israel who thought taxes were a bad idea or somehow they were apostate to be doing that. So uh, Jesus responds to so this verse 15 of Mark chapter 12, should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one. He, then he said to them, whose head is this and whose title? They answered the emperors. Jesus said to them, give to the emperor the things that are the emperors and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. What Jesus points out is that this money belongs to Rome, and Caesar sits on top of Rome. So if Rome gives you money and Rome asks for it back, well, it's Rome's money. That's the, it's an ingenious way of maybe sidestepping the question, but maybe really, and I think this is what Jesus is doing, I think he's illuminating the question. And uh, he illuminates it in that way. Is it interesting that whatever um, is going on in Revelation chapter 13, this mark of the beast has to do with the ability to buy and sell. And I think more or less what John is saying is that every culture, including this final culture, has control over the currency. And in order to participate in their system, you're going to have to buy into some of their values or else you won't be able to buy and sell. And I think this was true for the Christians in Rome. Now, the question is, is that a problem? Does that mean that they're not allowed to buy and sell? Does that mean that they all need to starve to death because they won't participate in an ungodly system? Well, clearly that's not how they interpreted it because every generation, Christians have lived in quite ungodly societies, at least most generations uh, in, since Jesus ascended into the heavens, and they have had to participate. So you see a lot of that in the, first in the, in the New Testament uh, among the first century believers. You have Paul wrestling in 1 Corinthians, for instance, with the question of whether you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. That is, uh, they're in a pagan culture. All meat was sacrificed. It was just a matter to what. And so if you're going to eat meat, and Paul suggests in Romans that there were some Christians that decided they couldn't eat meat at all because of this uh, corrupted uh, structure. But Paul suggests in 1 Corinthians that it has to be a matter of conscience, that for those who don't believe idols are anything, they can eat meat freely. But for those who believe idols are demons, they should not eat meat because they don't have a clear conscience about it. It's about navigating how in the world to live as believers in a society that is absolutely permeated with unchristian beliefs and sometimes even pagan beliefs that inform their values, their culture, and even their, uh, the way they buy and they sell. So I think when this was written to first century Christians, this made a lot of sense to them. And they understood that whoever the beast is, and they probably associated it with the Roman emperor at the time, whoever the beast is, whoever's in control, they control the means of buying and selling. And you're going to have to buy into their, their value system in order to participate in it. And we all know this. Our culture right now is not guided by Christian principles. No one would argue, I mean, capitalism may be the best idea we've come up with economically, but everybody knows it's not perfect, and it leaves a whole lot of people out, and there's a huge disparity between rich and poor. We all know that. We also know communism doesn't work either. There's always somebody in control. So we know these economic systems are not what Jesus would bring if he were here, because, well, look at them. You know a tree by its fruit, and none of them are producing profoundly great fruits. So, so 
the idea though is that you have to participate in these systems even if they're corrupted or else you couldn't eat and revelation is recognizing that now i don't think that means that christians should do what the amish did though you can understand why they might have done it and completely step out of the entire society because they just couldn't be co-opted by it i don't think the mark of the beast is specifically being forced to engage in commerce with uh, in a system that is not godly but i do think that's the number of the beast relates to that but the question now and i know it feels like i'm throwing a lot out there but like i said my desire is more to set the table than to answer all the questions but i have a feeling that all that we've talked about helps help set the state the table for what the mark of the beast is and will help us to avoid it again i said at the beginning very unlikely that this is technology, unless it's technology that comes with a very particular awareness, uh, because I don't think that you can be, oops, I just aligned myself on the wrong side of history and everything's done for me. I don't think that that can happen. I do think that we have to be aware, at least aware in how we respond to Jesus. So this idea of 666 has to be more than just living in the system. And if we pay attention to the language, I think you'll see that that is actually the case. So also this creature, the second beast, for lack of a better word, that is using the previous beast. You have to read Revelation to catch the whole context. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. So here again, and I'm just reiterating what I've said before, we have a system in which there is a false law guiding the way people look, what they aim at, and what they do. That's the right hand and the forehead. And it is bound up in their very survival in this culture. Because if they refuse to live by these values and to be guided by these principles, they literally cannot buy or sell. And the number that is symbolic of this is 666, which might have related to the Roman Empire. But it relates to powers and authorities, structures, economic system, systems much bigger than all of us, that in order to live in any culture we are forced into working with. It may be true that in a sense, everyone has the mark of the beast, but it is not in the heart of all, even if it may be peripherally the water in which all of us are forced to swim. But the people of God, though they live in this world, remember Jesus didn't ask for them to be taken out of the world, he asked them to be in the world, but not of the world. Christians live in these systems, but we must not allow them to be a part of us. Even if we're forced to buy and sell according to the principles of the country we live in, we cannot be directed or guided by the principles that underlie those systems. That would be taking the mark of the beast. And it's 666. Now, it's interesting to me, in the book of Revelation, there are three sets of plagues. So when the lamb takes the throne, there are, three, there are seven seals that need to be broken. And then when the seventh seal is broken, there are seven trumpets. And then a little bit later, seven bowls of God's wrath are poured out. 
Now this 666, which is clearly indicative, as David Jeremiah has said, of the human system, um, that's probably true of the governmental system in which any Christian lives. That's certainly true, especially the last generation and the system they live in. That's the ultimate fulfillment of this, but it has its small permutations throughout history. But what's interesting is that 666 also points us, I think, to the sixth of each of these plagues. Because if you read through the trump, if you read through the seals, you read through the trumpets, you read through the bulls of wrath, on the sixth of each of those, there's a human response. There's a human response on the sixth day. And I think it helps to demarcate what kinds of principles guide the beast, guide the antichrist, guide those who would present themselves to us as saviors and as kings, but are in truth false kings and false saviors trying to be Jesus when they are in fact coming from another source. So we're going to look at those and just notice on the sixth of each of these plagues, 666, there's a human response. And I think that human response, and this is just a guess on my part, but I think it delineates the spirit of the Antichrist that we must be aware of. Because I really think, though we are all forced to live in commerce according to the principles of the beast in whatever society or culture we live in, to take its mark, to receive it, is to be guided by those principles. And I think we see them in uh, laid out in Revelation on the, on the sixth of each of these cycles. So we'll see what you think. So we're in Revelation chapter 6, verse 13, verse 12. We'll start at verse 12. And this is Jesus who is opening the seals. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and there came a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree drops its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll rolling itself up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And this is the response. This happens at the sixth seal. This is the response of the people of the earth. Then the kings of the earth and the magnates and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So this is the human response to the sixth seal. So in the cycle of seven, which is clearly reminiscent of creation, uh, and it's happening here three times, um, on that sixth day, the day that humans are created, the response of the people of the earth is to hide. And that is exactly the response of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, after they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They hide from God. They are afraid of his judgment. They will not present themselves before him for judgment. They conceal themselves and wish to be hidden. I think this is the first component of the spirit of the Antichrist, the first of the sixes. It is the desire in humans to conceal their bad behavior and not have it exposed, to refuse to stand before God and face judgment for what they've done, but instead to hide what they've done and to bury it and to hope that they can somehow, like a child running to their bed and pulling their covers over their heads, that by closing their eyes and, and digging down deep, that somehow the judgment will just pass them over and they'll survive it unscathed. So the first spirit is to not want to be judged. 
to not be willing to stand before God and answer for what we've done. Now, Christians, for those of us who've really followed Jesus, we have fought against this spirit by repenting of our sins and coming regularly before the word of God to be judged and to be scrutinized by God and to be challenged, encouraged, but also exhorted to live in certain ways. It's one of the reasons we come to church on a weekly basis. It's one of the reasons that we read the scriptures, because we are asking God, as Daniel Doriani in his book, Getting the Message, has challenged us, to say, what does this say against me? What does God have against me? How do I need to change direction? The spirit of repentance is the opposite of what we see when the sixth seal is broken in the book of Revelation. The people of the earth don't want to repent. They just want to be hidden. They want to get away with what they've done. They just want to get past it. And so when it becomes clear that they're not going to get past it, when it becomes clear that their decisions, their values, their behaviors are coming down on their heads, they run and they hide. And they seek not to present themselves for judgment, but like Adam and Eve, they want to conceal their behavior and simply get passed over. I think that's the spirit of the Antichrist. That's the first six, at least in the book of Revelation, reading this narratively, which I think is important to do. The second is the trumpet. So after the six seal, all seven seals are broken, at the breaking of the seventh seal, there come now seven trumpets. The response of humans to the sixth trumpet, I think again, reveals the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of secular and fallen humanity, something that Christians need to resist. So we resist taking the mark of the beast, if I'm right about this, in the first case, the first six, by presenting ourselves for judgment before God, repenting of our sins, and laying our lives bare before him and not trying to hide the things that we've done. When judgment comes, we, we stand before it. That's how we resist. But those who take the mark of the beast, they hide their, their evil behavior. And here's the trumpet. So this is the second set. And I think the response of humans to the sixth trumpet, again, is revelatory of the spirit of the Antichrist. Then the sixth angel, this is Revelation 9, verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels were released, who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year to kill a third of humankind. The number of the troops of cavalry was 200 million. I heard their number. And this was how I saw the horses in my vision. The riders wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads. You can read through all that. Verse 20, the rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornication or their theft. So this is the response of the people of the earth to the second six, the sixth trumpet. They still will not repent. Now you have to read the rest. There's a lot of stuff happening in those first, seven, first five trumpets. And none of it has persuaded them. And it's interesting the way that um, Revelation describes it. They did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not give up worshiping demons. And, and we might think, oh, that's so pre-modern. Like, we don't worship demons. Well, demons are, are spirits that motivate people um, 
to go against the orderliness and the law of God and to embrace the chaos of primordial creation when everything was water and there was no life before God started to create. They kind of push us back to the waters, push us back to non-life. And so many of us are following spirits that are not leading us to the life of God. They're leading us to other places. So, you know, we might think demons is a pre-modern idea, but they're alive and well, believe me. And idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. And, and that's just, we think, well, that's pre-modern. We don't set up idols. I don't have one in my house, but we still worship these things. Gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood are just, they're just technology. They're just wealth. They're just means of building shelter, of protecting ourselves from the world, of buying and selling. It's just another way of saying that the people refuse to repent of the idea that they thought their life existed in the profundity of their possessions, that they, they could protect themselves using their own wits and common sense. These are the gods that they are worshiping. They're essentially all just worshiping human ingenuity because humans made these gods. But the gods are just projections of us, of the things we value in ourselves. And so the, the ancient pagans and people today make gods of the things that they value. And so they made gods out of gold because they valued gold. They made gods out of silver because they valued silver. They made gods out of bronze because they valued bronze, which is probably more for weapons and things, and stone and wood. This is still what people build their idols to, whether they're houses or companies or whether they're portfolios or whether they're family legacy or traditions or whatever they are. And so they would not repent of those things. They would not turn from the things they had put their faith in. They refused. They double down. Even though the whole world is falling apart, they still refuse to return to God. This is the second six, I think. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. This is essentially what is guiding the people of the earth. They're guided by fear and a desire for these, these things, material things, gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. They would not repent of, of worshiping those things and chasing after them, nor would they repent, this is verse 21, of their murders or their sorceries you know, their spiritual pursuits that are other than God, or their fornication, uh, porneia, it's a Greek word, it's any sexual behavior that falls outside of the law of Moses, or their thefts, or the way they stole. They just would not accept that they were being guided by false law, just as they are being guided by a false Messiah, an antichrist. They would not believe it. They absolutely refuse to repent. That's the second six. So I said we resist the first six by coming before the Lord and allowing ourselves to be judged. We resist the second six by turning from our trust and lust for things that do not provide life, that are not of God. I think that's the case. And finally, there are seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. And the response of the people of the earth to the sixth bowl, I think, could be understood as the final six. The sixth angel poured out his bowl. This is Revelation 16, verse 12, on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up in order to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw three foul spirits like frogs coming from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. These are all uh, figures in the book of Revelation. They all have representation of something. We're not going to get into some of the possibilities of what they mean, but they all represent this final kingdom, this, this final permutation of the mark of the beast, the, 
the false law, the principles and values and rules that guide people that are not consistent with the law of God. They're another law set up. So anyway, they represent that kingdom in various ways. And these are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole earth to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Essentially, the response of the people of the earth to the sixth bowl is to gather themselves to go to war against God and the people who follow Jesus. So they begin to assemble. So their first response in the first six is to hide. Their response in the second six is to refuse to repent, to, be, to, to absolutely refuse to change direction, to just double down on the way they've lived their lives. And then in the third six, their response is to actually gather like-minded people, which is the majority on earth in the book of Revelation, and to prepare themselves for a war against God and all those who have aligned themselves with him. But it's ultimately a war against God and his Messiah, against Jesus. So I think the book of Revelation, probably the 666 connotes the way in which uh, governments are co-opted by an ungodly set of principles that are guiding them. And all who buy that, who drink that down uncritically, take on the mark of the beast. I think that's essentially what's being talked about there. But it's interesting to me that the 666 also so closely correlates the response of humans on the sixth of each of these three rounds of judgment that God pours out on the people of the earth. And the intent of the judgment is not to punish. It really is to awaken the people to the reality of their experiences, to really help them to realize that they are being led along a primrose path by a false Messiah and a false set of values that, isn't, that pretends it's leading to life, but is not. You read the book of Revelation, these values are leading inevitably to the end of life. And yet, most people on earth are completely persuaded that what they're pursuing is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that these are good and valuable things that they are chasing down. But the truth is, they are pursuing death. And God's judgment is not meant to simply punish people for making the wrong choice, but it is mostly intended to catch, to awaken the people of God and any who were seeking real life to the, to the total sham that's been pulled over their eyes. And the first target of this message is the Roman Empire, without a doubt. So a lot of Christians see uh, commonalities between what's being written about in Revelation and what happens in the early centuries of the church in the Roman Empire. And for good reason. It certainly applied then. But it has continued to apply. In every permutation, it seems that the beast, the false prophet, um, and the harlot rise again. In every, no matter how well a, a civilization begins to start, it always ends up in this way. And that is because civilizations in the human realm are just simply not built on the law of God or the teachings of Jesus. They just, the teachings of Jesus will not work according to the things, the kinds of things the world wants. Things like safety, security, power, um, influence. Those Jesus' teachings don't work to accomplish those things. And so the world refuses to let go of them. From the very, very beginning, from Adam and Eve seeking um, knowledge through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and wanting to become gods by, by simply seizing it from the residual knowledge left in the earth after creation. That they, they want power. They want autonomy. They want 
what they want and they don't want to be told that some things are off limits and that there are boundaries and that there are laws actually and requirements and responsibility. They don't want any of that. They want to determine that on their own from the very beginning. And that principle underlies just every civilization that has ever lived. And even though God tried to rescue the people of Israel from that when he delivered them from Egypt and gave them a law, uh, they still continued to live out that law according to the same principles. And that's the battle that you see with the prophets. And so the mark of the beast is not something that, that is yet to arrive at the end of time. I mean, it, it's, it's here all the time. Every civilization, in order for us to dwell in it and to interact with it, we have had to operate according to values that are not God's values. But the people of God, now, if God had said, I want you out of that, then the right thing to do would be monasteries or maybe what the Amish have done or utopian society or something like that. But the teaching of the New Testament was that God understood that and that he was throwing us out as salt among the nations of the earth. And we were not to be out of the world. We were to be in the world, just simply not of it. We were to be a people who lived by different values in the midst of societies that were guided by values that were not ours. And so we've been maybe confused in the West because Christianity became the dominant game in town in so many European countries, and then certainly was the predominant worldview of the founding fathers of our country. So we sort of were under the idea that, that in the West we were exempted from this whole thing because certainly we are building our societies on Judeo-Christian values. And so certainly um, these are godly nations and not nations that are at risk to be corrupted by the mark of the beast. But you'll know a tree by its fruit. And so one of the things that we have now begun to realize is that there's still among the popes, among the kings and the royalty, even among the poor, because the poor are the ones who came to America and acted just like royalty once they got money. So it wasn't like the poor were any purer. But underneath, even what we call Christian societies, even with Judeo-Christian ethics and the law of God at its root, we were really no better than Israel before us. There was still that worldly desire for power, for safety, for security, for prosperity, that, that still was guiding us. The mark was still guiding what we did and what we looked at. And so it's no, no wonder that now 243 years into this uh, American experiment that the, the the tree has begun to produce fruit that looks very much like the fruit of every other nation that's ever lived. It's very selfish and very uh, sensitive to to insult, not very eager to forgive or to show mercy, not eager uh, to share, but more to hoard, um, wanting not wanting to have to submit to God's law, but to write laws for ourselves that will guide us, thinking that we know better. Like the fruit we're producing looks exactly like the fruit the Romans produced, looks exactly like the fruit the Babylonians produced, the Persians produced. I mean, nothing has really changed. And that's because we have, we have as cultural people been more or less guided by the same fundamental things that have always guided the fallen. But there have been Christians in all of these nations as well true Christians who have been in the world, but not of it. And that's what Revelation is trying to help us to parse. There are people marked by God who, though they have to live in these societies in which the beast runs everything, in which you can't even buy or sell without participating with the currency the government gives you, right? Render to Caesar what is Caesar. Caesar's face was on that coinage. And the, 
and the seal of whatever country we're in is on the money. You can't even buy and sell unless you play by their rules. Like it, God realizes this is where he has sent us. But in the midst of all that, you don't have to be marked by it. You don't have to be marked by the beast. You can be marked by Christ. But in order to do that, you have to resist the impulses that bring the beast's leadership. We can't hide. We have to present ourselves before God to be judged. And we have to be willing to hear his judgment and where we're wrong. We have to be willing to repent. That's the second six, right? Unlike the people of the earth who stay stalwart in their direction, we have to be willing to change direction. If the Lord shows us we've been headed in a wrong direction. And sometimes that means selling everything we have, giving it to the poor and following Jesus. Sometimes it means sacrificing things that we value. I mean, read the Gospels. You recognize that turning around is a very hard thing to do. And most people who even encountered Jesus didn't want to do it. And then finally, we have to accept the fact that at the end, the world will want to purge itself of the values of God because they are an irritant. And that's what happens in the last six. The world, the world gathers to extinguish Jerusalem. 